Hey, and welcome to another edition of the Rugby Report Card. Uh, joining me today is the also runs Jim and Blake, but also I'm very excited to introduce a special guest, uh, someone who's played over 100 games of professional rugby, played in three different countries, also played as part of the, the National Sevens program as well, uh, but also just started a, a career in media as well. So welcome, John Alonso. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having us, guys. Um, always a pleasure to come on and jump on rugby podcast. There's not too many of them in Australia, so it's yeah, it's great to come on and talk about my career and journey, and yeah, well, hopefully grow some rugby in the country. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's uh, talking about it, before we talk about your your, your obviously your career. Um, how are you finding post retirement? And obviously, you're doing a great job. We've really w- enjoyed watching, even though it's late at night for us. Enjoyed watching the the coverage on on Stan and Channel Nine with you being the sideline reporter. How have you how have you enjoyed that this year? Yeah, it's been great. Um, the opportunity sort of popped up. I was um, just having a chat to to Drew Mitchell, and yeah, it's great for for me to stay involved in the game over in Perth. Um, the the Western Force fans are great people, and um, some diehard rugby fans over here. A few of them actually ventured to a, a Worcester Warriors game um, when they were travelling through England on a rugby tour. So to be able to stay involved in the game somewhat. Here at the moment, in terms of the commentating, is great. It's it's awesome for my little son to to come out and see me still on a rugby field, albeit in a suit. Um, in a few years, I'll tell him one day. I, once I used to pull on the jersey and play, but yeah, I've, I've really enjoyed the first two goes of it, and only had the one tongue twister so far. So it's been great. How good's YouTube for being able to just pop it on accidentally on the lounge room telly, and he can figure it out from there. Start winning another premiership. <laughs> Um, what's it like in the media sort of balancing knowing the boys and calling the game objectively? Um, I mean, what's that what's that transition transition like? We've got free reign here, right? We can we can say whatever we like, there's no consequences, play on. We we try and you know be fair and balanced when we can, but hyperbole works too. We can add drama and make things funny. Um, what's that like? I imagine it like you know, you, you were playing with these guys a couple of years ago. What's that like? Yeah, I definitely wouldn't say I've got the hang of it just yet. Um, I think the biggest things, like, I, I've, I really want to try and be non-biased when I, I talk about it and talk about both teams. Um, but, yeah, I think one of the benefits is the fact that I did play for a lot of the Australian super teams, so do know a lot of the guys. So I think it works in my favour in that instance. Um, you, you do have to sort of think about what you're saying and I'm still learning the fact that technically I can say whatever I feel about the game as well I'm not um I'm not trying to to please anyone so I'm learning to be honest and open and I, I think the biggest struggle is you sort of sit there holding your camera watching a game of footy um and it's quite easy to forget that you're actually talking <laughs> on, a, on live um television for the game so that's probably the biggest learning curve is actually just halfway through an answer, realising that I'm live on stand sport <laughs> and not panicking and going, okay, just escape from this answer. Yeah, <laughs> you see it so and... many times when you watch people coming in and they, they start a thought, they get lost halfway through and then they recover. Yeah. It's 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 a good watch on this end. <laughs> yeah, because usually you're used to talking to someone, like I'm looking at someone in the eyes as I'm running through a moment in a game whereas it's completely different. You've got, like, the screen in front of you. And so, like, I'm running through a foot thought whilst watching the game and then, like, you might get caught up in an incident in the game. Yeah. 
and for it not to be normal it's you sort of quickly jump back and go oh, where was I so it's been as I said it's been um awesome to to do it the last two weeks and well two games and looking forward to doing the rest of the four Horse home games as well. What's the difference between the the pressure in inverted commas? Like you played, you know, high level rugby. Like, uh, was it was that easier in inverted commas because it was innate, it was trained in you, and you've done it since you were a kid, and you knew how to deal with it? Or was the pressure as the camera is panning to you right now, and you suddenly had a different thought as something else occurred? Like, is the pressure the same, different, or how would you describe the difference between them? I'd say it's different. Um, I think pressure and nerves when I was playing was very closely linked to excitement um, because you do it all week, you train all week, you kick all week. Like if you make an error from from nerves or that, you, it's something you've done a lot of and you can sort of fall back on that. Um, whereas the nerves from, yeah, holding the microphone is, yeah, I'd say that's just straight nerves. <laughs> Surely <laughs> every player you interview, you just let them know that you've won two titles. Yeah, I, I have enjoyed the Stan Sports intro that they've been <laughs> um, Yeah. Can, can we, because, I mean, what we're interested in is, um, and I don't mean to be disrespectful, but you're a rugby mercenary. Um, I think the term you used was rugby slut. Um You've played for a myriad of different clubs uh, and different occasions. Can you give us a bit of a bit of insight into that? I'm, I'm particularly, I'm, I'm really want to know about the force in that last year, um, what that was like, because I imagine that was a, a pretty traumatic experience. But I'm really interested in the the differences between the Reds and the Tars, because you were there when both of them were at the pinnacle of Australian rugby in the last decade. There hasn't been a lot to celebrate, but those those two years we were all up and about. So I don't know. Can you give us a bit of insight what the differences were between those two clubs? Yeah, I think my career sort of got put into two two parts. And the first five years of my career, I was in five Super Rugby final series. So I just thought that was your stock standard. Like you play Super Rugby, then you're going into finals. So yeah, my first three years at the Reds was like played at five semifinals. Um, obviously, 2011 when we won it. Um, and then to move to the Waratahs in 2014, um, to be a part of those two years as well and be in finals and semifinals. Um, yeah, it was it was almost like I'm blessed like that it happened. Like I'm very lucky that the first, like I, I got to experience that because I know that guys can go through a whole career and, not experienced finals, but I was probably young and oblivious to... Yeah, that's what I wanted. Did you take it for granted, that level of success? I would say, like, to an extent, yes. Like, I definitely didn't take it to an, for granted in the moment. But um, as I said, my career sort of ended up being in two parts. Um, after leaving the Waratahs and moving to the force, the challenges there were were completely different, as you, as you mentioned, being there in 2017. Um that was like a completely different challenge that created like a bond in the team that was very similar to the, the teams that were winning it. And that was probably the similarities for, for both those is how close the the clubs, the players were. Um, and then again, to, to go to Worcester and be at a club that's in a re- relegation battle every year, um, I sort of could take happiness in those moments knowing that I've played in a lot of finals and won a few titles 
it's exciting to be a part of the other side of it. Um, in terms of comparing the two, um, who wins? Reds or Reds or Tars? I've heard fans argue this one for many years. Who, who wins? Two thousand eleven Reds, or was it twenty fourteen Tars? Who wins? You play in both teams, so you know. Yeah, you're in both teams. You're a client. Well, I, I only I played in the final for the Reds, so um, oh, that's such a tough one. I've actually never been asked that question. We're well, um, on the spot now. <laughs> I know who I reckon. I mean, Quaid at the peak of his powers in 2011 was pretty tough to stop, and and the fact that the that red the Reds team are played in, we beat that Crusaders team. Um, but then you'd say, well, at the Waratahs, they beat pretty similar Crusaders team. So that argument doesn't work. Um, for me, I'm not going to try and I'm going to be very political here <laughs> and say it's a tie. <laughs> <laughs> and it was there was such very like differing experiences for me. Like that Reds year was I was actually playing sevens for that whole year. Mm. Um, and that was when sevens was a development pathway. So. Played with Bernard Foley and Nick Phipps throughout that year, and that's how that friendship sort of happened. But um, I finished the sevens year and got back, and the Western Force actually called me to come over and play the last two Super Rugby games for them. Um, and I'd been in the academy for two years, played sevens for the year, all to try and get an opportunity to play Super Rugby. And then I found myself with the opportunity, and I saw went and saw you and Mackenzie and. The Reds had already locked up a final spot. I'd been in the academy at the Reds, which trained pretty much with the full squad all the time anyway. So I felt really close to that group. Um, so I had a chat with Ewan and he was like, mate, I'd support you if you go to the force, but we're going to be a part of the finals. So it'd be great if you'd stay. I ended up saying no to the force because I wanted to just stay and help the force, help the Reds prepare for the finals and have numbers and be a part of the final series as a trainer. And that weekend, um, I think three of the Reds, like in sort of inside outside backs, got injured, and so Ewan called me into his office on that Monday. He's like, "Last week you made the best decision of your life. Um, you're starting at fullback this week." And that was the second last game of the season against the Force. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so the comparison I have is like that Reds year to play in the final was yeah, like the the highlight of my rugby career, probably coming in in my fourth game. But in a weird way, I probably felt just as a part of the Waratahs grand final win, um, I was injured in the finals series at the Waratahs. But throughout the year, I actually didn't play too many minutes. I had a really good preseason um, and then broke my rib in the last trial game. And so they put Kirtley to 12 and he was just going to play at 12 for the few weeks and, until I got back. And I remember watching the first game and he's played, <laughs> he's got man of the match and was unbelievable. And I was like, okay. But that year I was on the bench for the majority of it behind Bernard and Kirtley. But being, I suppose, a, a smart enough footy player, you, you can't get angry about not being in the starting team, A, when you're winning, and B, when the two guys who are ahead of you are, like, are in the peak of their powers playing the form, best form of their career. So, um, yeah, it's very hard for me to compare. I've probably spoken a lot but yeah, I'd I'd say that um, they were both very different, but very similar in how cl close the groups were. And in terms of your actual question, uh, I'd say it's a high-scoring draw. 
<laughs> yeah. Can I quiz you on the um the coaching styles between the two coaches, Ewan and Checker? What was it? How was it the same? How was it different um, in those years that you were there? Um, very different. Um, but well, everyone everyone knows Czech. Um, <laughs> you see Checker's passion and like Checker was all intensity, all passion, but also like everyone knew their role. And I'd say that was the the thing that was the same between the two of them was just how well you knew your role. Um, like I could probably like Reds days almost remember certain like styles of game plan or defence because you just knew your role and that wasn't just the head coaches, that was the balance of assistant coaches as well. I think that was both very important for those two teams. For instance, um, Ewan was very quiet and measured and made sure that our kickoffs were like perfect, that he was just always like, we need a kickoff and keep them guessing. So Quaid had free reign to quick kick anywhere and our exits were just, yeah, like perfect. So he took over kickoffs and was just very much good, like perfect, giving you a message about your role. And then because he was so calm, he had Matt Taylor under him, who was just super intense. And um, he was my school coach as well. So I was very close with Tatsy, oh, wow. but like he, he brought an intensity that was like the offset of Ewan's calmness. And then you had Jim Mackay, the backs coach, who was like real chilled and a surfy and like the three of them worked really well together. And then at the the Waratahs, you had um, Checker, who was obviously super intense, but then you had a Daryl Gibson, who's the backs and attack coach, who was very measured and calm. And um, so I think the balance of those, the, the assistant coaches and coaches at the two clubs was just perfect at the time. In terms of the Ewan and Checker difference, um, yeah, like Ewan's pre-game talks were like intense but direct and specific and about roles, but Checker's was, he, he had buzzwords that he'd picked for the week. So, um, I think it was uh, it was one of the last games of the year we were at home and the, the the word was sharp. He wanted us to be sharp. So all week he just walked around with his axe. <laughs> <laughs> at the Tars, there was this random chunk of wood in the in the physio room I think it was I don't know why it was there what it was for but it was this big chunk of wood that was always there it was there for this last week that's why yeah I don't know <laughs> anyway for the for the pre-game talk like we go and we all sit in the, the huddle and check us at his point and he's waving this axe around <laughs> and he's talking about being sharp and he's like I want you to go out there and just be as effing sharp as you can fucking <laughs> man and then he had the wood and then like another small bit of wood on top of it. And he's like, as he said it, he just sends the axe into it and it gets stuck in the chunk of wood. And then he lifts it up and the wood's on it. And then he slams it back down again. And this bit of wood just flies off and it goes straight past me. And I'm pretty sure it's Mitch Chapman sitting next to me. <laughs> just flies straight past our faces and he just goes, fuck it, hell, that's sharp. <laughs> like we all sort of start giggling and like this is for a pretty like a big game but there was like a like a laughter in the group of like yeah like we're ready how good's this and he's like just go out there and yeah like uh, you sold me i want to play and check his team yeah it's a pretty good <laughs> game <wild. laughs> just yeah there was the shop plenty of, plenty of those stories i'm gonna give that a go at work <laughs> <laughs> Talking of uh, being sharp and being on the ball, obviously you played in a number of positions, fullback with a majority of the type of fly up, but you mentioned inside centre as well. Did you find it challenging um, to transition between from one position to another or uh, was it more challenging in defence and defensive patterns or 
Um, did you not mind interchanging, even though I know you played the majority of time at fly half, or did you enjoy one one position more than the other? I think um, like to start your career, it's great being utility, like to to be able to move around different position. I definitely think that it hogtied my career. Um, mm. Like I've, I sort of get annoyed when you hear the the story of the player who's like, I'm only playing 10 and um, you hear rumours of players who have it in their contract that they're to, to start at 10 or whatever. And like those sort of stories annoy me because I definitely put the team first. Put the team first. And it, as I said, it, it hogtied my career. There were moments where like I, I'd, you'd find your form at 12 um, and then a few injuries like at the Reds. Um, we had like a crazy run of injuries and so I ended up, I was attacking at 13 um, for a few games and then um, the guy who goes to 12 plays well and then you sort of find yourself on the bench and like I was fine with it because I love the team and love my teammates. Looking back on it now as a guy who's retired and still had a few goals that I'd never reached it's it, like there is some form of frustration, but I, I know at the time, like there was none of that frustration. So I'm I'm pretty fine with it to now. But yeah, definitely to, to talk about it openly would be that it was great to start my career. I wish earlier on I might have put my foot down, but at the same time, that took me to the Waratahs to try and find my position and we won there and then um, was ended up more of a centre there at the Tars. But then in the second year was more 10 and played really good at NRC at 10 and the force opportunity opened up. So I reckon if the force didn't fold, I'm probably not having this conversation now because I feel that when I got to the force, I'd made that 10 position sort of my own and was going to, I'd signed for another two years, but definitely in terms of movement early in my career, it was great to start, but you sort of find yourself like fixing gaps and then it's easy to find yourself not on, on the bench because Jono can help us. Yeah, and the, the tricky thing is with the 10, there isn't usually a spot on the bench for a backup 10, is there? You've got to make yourself versatile. Yeah, yeah, spot on. So you'd probably argue I was a great back to have on the bench. Um, I think it just sort of suited my game. That works but, for, yeah. Yeah, being able to play different positions, like playing at 12, I, I like running hard and defence was always a strength. So I could change my game to do that at fullback. I could use a bit more of my kicking game. And just run the ball back hard again, playing at 10. Um, obviously, communication goes up and the kicking game as well. So I liked the challenge of changing my game and being good at changing it week to week. I thought that was something that I was yeah good at and um, something that I'm getting into coaching now. And it sort of actually really helps me as a coach be able to give points that, for an outside centre that I actually... No, because I played 13 in a few games and then I can give points for a 12. I can give fullback points. I actually started one game on the wing for the Waratahs, so maybe I, that qualifies me to give winger points. <laughs> can I ask a slightly ignorant question? Just because defence, like, you were a machine. You were like that. Watching you, you were not missing a tackle um, and you're not the biggest bloke. Um, I know your old man was a leaguey because my dad, every time you're on the TV, told me how he used to watch him at Newtown Jets. <laughs> um, loves yeah. to tell me every time. Um, did you grow up playing league? Like, was that part of your pedigree for defence? Um, no, like I played soccer because I lived in England because dad was coaching rugby league over there. Um, and then I moved back to the Gold Coast and played one year of league, but ended up at a really good school um, to TSS on the Gold Coast. Um, and that was rugby union 
only and because I was there on a rugby scholarship, I wasn't allowed to play rugby league. So, yeah, I haven't played a game of league since I was 11 or 12. Um, but, yeah, I, Dad definitely ran off something on me because, um, yeah, he could definitely hit yeah. and I could tell he was a good tackler because I'm pretty sure every tackle I made for the majority of my Super Rugby career, Dad got a mention. So, <laughs> <laughs> Whether it was a commentator or whether it was your dad at your place, someone was saying yeah, exactly. <laughs> Talking about uh, tackling and you mentioned England and what have you, uh, was it challenging um, to to play in the Premiership and Premier Rugby? And because it's a very different style to to obviously Super Rugby, but obviously the ability to tackle and defend well was such a key element, even in a in a relegation fight for Worcester. Uh, but how what were the challenges of, of going from Super Rugby to Premiership Rugby or Premier Rugby? Um, I tell you, you really find out about yourself when you're in a team's in a relegation battle. Mm. Um, I loved it. I I loved the club I was at. I loved the, my teammates in a weird way because, as I touched on, I won Super Rugby at the start of my career. I actually really enjoyed being in the in the at Worcester in a relegation battle. Don't get me wrong; I'd love to have been at a team that was winning and playing Champions Cup, but. To find the positives out of all situations you're in, I, I really enjoyed that. Um, I think like the way I sort of put put it is, it's like playing shoot shield almost in a super professional environment. Obviously, earning some some pretty good money, but like I, I was at Worcester and lived in Cheltenham, where James Hansen lived. Luke Morahan played for Bristol down the road. Um, Chiba played for Gloucester. Ben Tapway and James Hall they were in London two two hours away. Like there was a really good group of us from Reds 2010, 2011, 2012 days that were actually all living within an hour and a half of each other and on rival teams. So in terms of the lifestyle, like I loved it, the rugby. Um, I thought like everyone always talks about it slower over there, but I'd say like you're probably more inclined to find the prop in the premiership who's not catching or passing is there to scrummage but in terms of like the actual skill level of the comp if you look at the october games or even like the august this um september games they're all like 35 to 42 28 to 40 style games that are really fast and mm. good free-flowing rugby it's just you'd be insane to have a crack at that when it's three degrees and it's coming in rain's coming in sideways so um it, it definitely like suited my my style of footy in terms of kicking and hard and physical but I think that was in terms of like the skill of the player I never thought that they were less skilled like some of the most skilled players I've played with or played against were in that competition it's just if you if you're trying to do that in January in England you're, you're probably not starting in the game yeah the, the sleet coming in or the the rain coming in sideways at, at six ways must have been a challenge under the high ball and trying to throw it wide it was definitely not the right option I imagine at that time um, <laughs> Yeah, especially they changed the lights to make them new and the, the, there were these W lights, but the, the new state-of-the-art lights that Six Ways got in were not state-of-the-art and <laughs> better, even more challenging. Wendy, uh, obviously you could talk about Worcester, but it would also be remiss of us not to talk about Mia Honda and playing in Japan. Again, a completely different, um, obviously, culture and rugby experience in you know, it's very hard to compare all three, but was there any unique or specific differences that um, you experienced in, in Japanese culture in terms of rugby as opposed to the other two in terms of playing style, et cetera? Yeah, definitely some differences in Japan. Um, again, I, I loved it. Like, I, I think, to be honest, I could I would have gone anywhere in my career and really enjoyed it. Um, I mean, I moved every two years of my career. 
um, that was never the plan. But um, to be here now at the end of the career that's gone for 12 years um, and have all those experiences, I, yeah, in some, some ways I wish that I stayed at a team and forward, like found a home there. But at the same time, I've got some great friends and experiences from moving around and having those different moments. And Japan's no different, I think. Like it was just the Japanese way of life. Like they've got the saying, "This is Africa." I think there's they say this is Japan. Like you just you go in and really just dive headfirst into Japanese culture, and they'll love you. You just have have a crack at the accent, have the language, um, and to to play in a, a team where your teammates, the Japanese guys, are are working at the factory, um, is just yeah, obviously extremely unique and. They are definitely rugby players who work at Honda. They're not Honda players, Honda factory workers who play a bit of rugby. The rugby comes first for them. Um, so I was hearing that. I was really excited to get over and experience that. But I was also probably shocked at how professional they were. Granted, the Japanese way of life is very whatever you do, you do it your best. And um, that definitely was shown in how the players went about their, their days and how the coaches went about their days as extremely professional setup. And in terms of footy I really loved it um we had a Japanese head coach Taihei who wanted to play a style of rugby that was expansive and running so to be there and get amongst that was one of the great years nice can I ask with all the moving between clubs um throughout your career was there a temptation to jump overseas sooner you know chase the money because I like without going into I'm sure you would have had offers um but you obviously applied your trade in Australia for, you know, throughout your 20s. Was there uh, yeah. any incentive to go? What are, without, you know, getting into the nitty-gritty, but what are those contract negotiations like? Um, what, what are you weighing up when you're making those decisions? Because you, you described the UK with your mates. It sounded all time. I did that in my 20s with no money. Um, would have been much better <laughs> as a professional rugby player. Um, you know, and, and how do you reflect? on that th- those decisions um not being a one club guy and 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 on the other hand not chasing the money at, at 22 to 23 going to japan or france then do you want to give us um, an insight yeah i like i was chasing the, the wallaby dream for that's all we wanted to hear john that is music to a, a wallaby fans ears yeah and i think like that's probably gone out of the, the game in australia a touch um is like I suppose a good number of guys having that sort of mindset. Um, definitely can look at um, earlier on in my career and little opportunities. I sort of, I was pretty firm to my agent early on, like, I don't want to hear about Japan yet. Like, I just was like, I don't want to hear about Japan. I, I want to try and play for the Wallabies. Um, I'm still young. Like, you, you, like at that stage, I'm like, I've got the time in the world, all the time in the world to do that. Um, and so, yeah, I've I had the agent tell me like, oh, we've got, I've got some options for you in Japan, but I'd always sort of, yeah, just tell him like, I don't want to know about them yet. <laughs> just wait. Mm. Um, so yeah, I, Japan was always there. Europe wasn't necessarily something that I, I was looking at anyway at that stage. Um, and it, it definitely changed after the fourth year in 2017. Um, a few, like a few things that sort of happened in that 12, 18 months, um, Obviously, now I'm, I'm as part of a select group of people, once we're almost Wallabies, to be on the bench and, and not get on in the game. Um, and so that, like, obviously dangled the cherry massively. Um, and then 
and I found my home at Perth and had signed to stay another two years at the force, but obviously the club folding and a few other things happening with um with some selection stuff. Yeah, the 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 passion, I suppose, to to move to another super team yeah. mm. and go again was what starting to wane. Um and so I actually was trying to st- stay in England after, at the end of my medical joker. I did three months there in a medical joker and I was like, you know what, like I've done seven years in Australia, three teams, found my home and they've got rid of it from the comp. Moved to Worcester and I'm loving it and playing really well here and they want me to stay. Like I want to stay and Australian rugby didn't allow me to. They didn't release me. Um, and then was meant to be going to the Rebels, but yeah, some stuff happened there and ended up back in Queensland, which ended up being one of my favourite years of my career, was that Reds 2018 year. Um, but why is that? Um, it was a bunch of reasons. Like I got to play ten at the Reds. Um, it was probably long enough after Quaid had left that you, the the poor young ten wasn't getting the oh he's no Quaid. Yeah. So there was a bit of freedom there. Um, I knew I was already going back to England for a lot of the season. So there was a freedom in how I was playing and enjoying it and helping the younger guys. Um, my, my academy coach, Paul Carrozza, was, he was the backs coach and it was the first time he'd had a crack at Super Rugby. Obviously, being back close to my family, there were plenty of reasons yeah. um, why I loved it. And there was a few players who sort of, Ben Lucas, Aidan Tower, who are good mates of mine, who sort of came back as well to uh, sort of give the give the squad a bit more age and experience. It just it was just a really fun year and, yeah, loved it. But I'd say that my passions to play for the Wallabies over overpowered any of my thoughts about playing overseas. And yeah. that was definitely tied to the fact that I did start Super Rugby at 20. I was like, I've got plenty of time for that. Mate, I say this with all due respect. You, you, you're you, the perfect case study of everything that was wrong with Australian rugby for that decade. You, you were there for it all, all the highs and all the lows, but the, the contract shit fuckery, the force folding, the positional yeah. changes, the lack of a centralised direction or leadership. Um, and I mean that with all due respect. Um, it's, it's You epitomise that decade you know like one of the one of the big things that was a reason that I was like I'm going to England um I'd hurt my hand and it was like a little fracture I could potentially play with it um I'd put a few good pretty good games together for the force and the June tests were coming up um and so I rang the Wallaby set up and said like I've got a fracture in my hand I know we're versing the Reds in a few weeks I'm happy to play injured if you need me and they said, oh, no, 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 um, we're going to pick three tens in the June test series. You're going to be one of them. Um, just work on your fitness and kicking the next four weeks and we'll see you in June. And I was like, oh, how is this? Um, kind of like train the house down for those four weeks, just work on my kicking, all that. And then they named this squad and I'm not in it. And oh, I hadn't got a phone call. I wasn't too sure what had happened, but um, they'd gone with Quaid, Bernard and um, Mac, uh, he was at the Waratahs, Mac Hanson. No, no, Mac Hanson. Mac Hanson. Yeah. yeah. No, is he the winger? No, Mac Hanson was the winger. Yeah. Oh, sorry, Mac Mason. Mac, Mac Mason. Mac Mason. Yeah. yeah. They'd gone with a, a development team, and he he played like thirty minutes of Super Rugby at that stage, and ever again. And yeah, oh, um, obviously he he experienced something similar yeah. to me being behind Bernard and Quirtley. So I've got plenty of respect for for Mac. Moving on from the Waratahs there, like I know all about that, and it's it's nothing against him either. Like I don't think it's beneficial for him to get put in that position, but it's I don't know. Like even talking about it now, sort of 
brings sort of tingles to, to the skin because it is frustrating. But like to not like get a phone call and a, an explanation and then trying to find out why. And then by the end of that, I was the force folded obviously that year and had the opportunity to go to England for the three months and loved it. So that was probably like when I was in England, I was there was a big switch of I'm keen to go to stay here. I mean, at that point, Matt, I would have been looking up the family tree. <laughs> trying to find some heritage. Where's the lineage? No, I'm still I've played Aussie Sevens. So ah, right. apparently I'm still Australian because I played Sevens 12 years ago, but you can change your, your country after three years now. So I'd rather not talk about international rugby now, John, if that's okay, because England is struggling <laughs> at the moment. So if we could move this conversation on, I'd really appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, it's a good talk- <laughs> France are pretty good, though. I, I'm yeah. sorry, you, you broke up there, John. I was just, <laughs> uh, I was connections poor, sorry. Um, yeah, no, England is struggling. France played outstanding um, at the weekend. They played the perfect game, and England played far from the perfect game. But, again, enough yeah. about England. Talk about, talk about the Wallabies. What is the ceiling for them? Eddie, obviously, Eddie Jones has just come in this year. There's a lot of excitement, um, obviously, uh, around the Wallabies. And I mean, before a ball is kicked to the international stage, what is their ceiling, do you think? And are you as excited as a fan as what we are, really? Well, not me. I've got to say me, but them too. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think, like, confidence is just the key like the guys who are playing super rugby they're just as skilled as anyone who's played super rugby but for four years the code's sort of been bashed in the country and there's no way that that doesn't rub off into to younger players there's no way they can sort of read those um news articles all the time and, and not have a little bit of doubt or lack of confidence in the game and in in themselves i suppose mm. so like eddie jones signing is like automatically puts a bunch of confidence in into everyone. And I think the Brumbies are probably a, a great organisation, an example of a, a team that the, the guys are just, as as I said, the same skills, the same base as everyone else. But you, you go to Canberra and you, you get that Brumby confidence and they're always every year like the Brumbies. You just, you just know that when you verse them, there's a like a quality of the team, a quality of the player. You know that they're going to be strong and fit and everything. So I think I think that Eddie Jones sort of confidence in us in just purely the signing could rub off into all the teams. So I'm I'm excited about that. I'm not. <laughs> Can I jump in there and say that just projecting from from your story, it's obvious why the Brumbies are strong because they have pathways. They've had a a, a pretty clear squad for a long period of time. They. You know, they they have that sort of what looks to be forward planning on both the coaching staff and, and the playing um, rather than that haphazard chopping and changing. And I, I don't know, I feel like that's the the thesis which is coming through here. Like the coaches change, but the structures remain the same sort of thing. Yeah, there's a there's clear direction. And, and when I hear your story, it sounded like Australian rugby was bereft of that. It was just flavour of the month. Let's try this. Nah, didn't work. Let's try this. Um, I don't know. Maybe I'm reading into it, but it, it feels like that's a clear narrative coming out here. Yeah, to be honest, like I, I don't really know enough about the, the Wallaby setup, other than my experiences, which were like that few, those short little moments. Um, they wouldn't be able to comment on that, and um, they had plenty of experience, uh, plenty of good moments in those years around there. Obviously, Checker with the Wallabies at the World Cup in England, like um. My, I think my experience is is quite unique, 
and definitely tied to all the stuff that was going on at the force and all that. So as you said, it was definitely a unique one. I wouldn't rub my experience mm. off onto the whole that four years mm. of wallabies. We'll do so, that though because it, it makes for a cracking yarn. Yeah. Hyperbole is great for drama. <laughs> yeah, I definitely agree in terms of the pathway stuff and the Brumbies have nailed it. Um, and it's fully similar to like a Melbourne Storm. Um, mm. You get guys who go there who've been at other teams and their career either has a resurgence or they've never really had a crack and then they go there and um, they then move on and they're like, oh, my God, how good is this player? Um, mm. I think the Brumbies have got that pathway nailed. And for me, like I, ex- I experienced an amazing pathway as well at the Reds and it's probably why I experienced like winning at the Reds in those first years in terms of like the academy. It was a small academy trained with the main squad, very closely linked. But my academy was um, Jake Schatz, Ed Quirk, Luke Moran, Ben Tapuai, um, Aidan Toa, Dom Shipley. Like there's a few other names. Are- and, and every bloke you know, there's an absolute freak um, who have adored watching, but they are blokes that thrived in that Reds system. Um, yeah, when they moved, maybe didn't have as much success in Australian rugby. Yeah, but also they they had a clear system. Mm. Like there's there's plenty of like freakish talents who um, don't quite make it. And I think from our academy years, um, only the guys who unfortunately had really big injuries at unfortunate ages were the ones that didn't kick on. Like everyone kicked on and was a part of the Reds in those years and has gone on and and played elsewhere, but. I definitely agree in terms of the, the playing pathway and I don't know much about the coaching pathway just yet, but hearing Dan McKellar on the, the Stan Sport coverage the other night talking and having that back and forth with Stephen Larkham about the setup and Stephen Larkham commenting on how well the, the setup is there, not only with the playing group but with the coaches, it's it's definitely no surprise that they have been the, the benchmark for 10 years of the last, the last 10 years of Australian rugby. Mm. And I really like the fact that the players may articulated that though, the fact that the coaches were very different in their approaches in terms of maybe their personality. But as you mentioned, the, the approach to the game was still the same and it allowed continuity and allowed them to be successful. So uh, there are so many different ways to, to win, but they have that same way and, and it still allows that personality of the coaches to come through. But I'd love to know your prediction though for the Wallabies for the World Cup because we were talking about that and then even Super Rugby. Um, who are they, uh, in terms of the Aussie Conference, who do you think are going to be the uh, um, the winners, in inverted commas, of our, of our subsection and also maybe uh, a hidden gem that might might come out over the next few weeks? So how do you think the Wallabies are going to do? And then a couple of predictions for Super Rugby. Yeah, I, I like I like the Eddie Jones shock and awe in a World Cup year. Um yeah, it worries me. Yeah, I think like I've um, be interesting to see how like the, the younger guys handle um, Eddie Jones, and I think the fact that they would have heard whispers and stories, and there's probably some fear there already that they'll be fine, um, and it'll be good good for them. Um, so I, I'm tipping almost similar to a Wallabies 2015 checker come in and um, shock and all. I reckon swinging the axe. Yeah, I'm not too sure. What Eddie Jones' pregame speeches are like, but I'm tipping a Wallabies semi-final minimum. Oh, minimum! Oh no, I can't live I, with these two. And I say that I think the Wallabies are very lucky that the mm. rankings was done years ago. Like that, yeah. that pool of death is just stupid. It's almost criminal to have those teams. I'm not. I don't know if you guys know it off the top of your head, but 
So you're you're mocking, John. Wales and England that are on they're on Australia's half of the draw. That's outrageous. You know, Wales that have won one game in forever, and England have just cut pumped by fifty. This is outrageous. This is a- I'm not talking about the weaknesses of that side. I'm more talking about the strengths <laughs> of the other. Mate, mate, cracking politician. Like I think, <laughs> I think um, I, I can't name the teams. It's like South Africa, New Zealand, France, Scotland, or something. Yeah, I think Scotland are the fourth team, not even the third team in that pool. It's that insane. Yeah, yeah, and it's yeah, they, like, how are they doing the rankings three years out from a World Cup? Like, it just doesn't make sense. But it's going to work well for the Wallabies. Richard I think. does our stats. He'll tell us who's in there. Come on, Dick, you got this. It's almost <laughs> like a FIFA World Cup. Yeah, the the, the best game. I can't. The, the best game is is clearly because New Zealand and France are in the same pool. So can you imagine that as a as as a yeah. Uh, it was a pool game, just, and I think it was their last World Cup or maybe the one before where a final ended up being the same as a group game. You know that that could end up being a, a final again. You know because both teams are obviously um, outstanding, but at the same time, in the other group is Ireland and South Africa, which is again another ridiculous group. Huge. So there's a lot of yeah. uh, a lot of really good um, and Scotland are in that group too. So there's a lot of big games, and you're right that high that side of the draw is um, is tough. So. Um, yeah, we won't talk about the other side. Yeah. So in terms of my tips, um, I'm going, yeah, I think the Wallabies will make the semi-final. And as I've touched on, I think momentum and confidence are huge for for all athletes. And I think the fact that the Wallabies have probably been, I think, starved of a bit of that confidence and momentum, that I reckon when they get it, it's going to be a big snowball. It's just the, the momentum will come with it. So... That's my tip there. All right. Can I, because we've monopolised a lot of your time, but I've had some questions I'm I'm desperate to ask you. So I want, I want rapid fire. I want to put you on the spot here so you can't give me the politician. Um, oh, yeah. They're going to get harder as we go through. First question is best player you've ever played with? Um, I'm going to say two, Quaid and Kirtley. Um, yeah, both just like just freaks. Like this. Kirtley ran over me in the under-13s. When Wade played Joey's, I remember that very well. Yeah, I'm sure he I was one of many. I think just a little bit of detail on it. Like Quade's obviously Quade and like just freakish skills, um, and just ability to just beat anyone. And then Kurtley, like his ability to perform a skill at like full on top speed, I think is pretty unmatched for people I've seen. Like just sprinting. There's a pass he throws in the 2014 final to Bernard. And it's just hands down the best pass I've ever seen in a game of rugby. Is at top flight, throws like a thirty metre dart. Like his ability to perform at one hundred percent speed is just yeah unmatched. So those two, love it. All right, next one, worst roommate, um, Ed Quirk. <laughs> you heard a story there. That sounded very definitive. Um, no, I just to be honest, I don't even know if I roomed with him on any trips, but I lived <laughs> close enough to him. He used to write the the Capalaba. Um, postcode in spray in deodorant on my car if he was ever driving past. <laughs> um, he was just yeah, the abattoir. Ed Quirk. All right, love it. Um, dark horse to make the Wallabies to to make the Wallaby twenty three this year under Eddie. I'll even give you the squad. Who's the dark horse that wasn't in Rennie's setup? Yeah, um, that, I can't even. That's a hard one to rapid fire. Yeah, it is a hard one. Right? <laughs> obviously, obviously, you know from this podcast already that I'm quite measured with my answers. So you can see that I'm thinking <laughs> way too hard about it. And in this whole time of thinking, I haven't thought of one name. Um, 
Give us a force player, force player that you reckon is in with a chance, who's a bit of a dark horse himself. I don't know. I'm not going to pick a name, but I think um, a lot of the teams have had some second row shortages. But yeah. as a result of it, I think we've actually seen yeah. some really good young lock put their hand up and show that, okay, the team doesn't necessarily need to panic. Um, and one of those is the, I can't think of his name off the top of my head at the moment, but the second row at the force at the moment who started next to Jeremy Thrush on the weekend and then one of the other Rebels guys. But I think the second row position is a weird one because they're either going to use a few of the Udo Laws to get a few back or um, they're going to be very happy with it. Um, it's interesting that because as they've got them back, it's the young guys are still out playing them. Oh, but they yeah. don't have that name recognition. Yeah, I think that's been a weird one. Um, but in saying that, like it's a World Cup in France, it's going to be pretty hard not to to go, like Arnold and Skelton who have played a lot of rugby in France. I'll and, tell you what, mate, if, if if commentary doesn't work out for your politics, well, you are yeah. measured. It's very impressive. Um, I, my next rapid fires certainly aren't any easier, but uh, Wallaby 10 at the World Cup. Um, I reckon O'Connor. Um, he was good on the weekend, wasn't he? Yeah, he was good on the weekend. He was... He was good last year before a bunch of the stuff popped up. Like his first 30 minutes against the force at the start of last year was like just did everything right. Um, so I, I reckon O'Connor and I think Tom Lyon is in the perfect position at the moment for his stage in his career to to be there behind that. Um, but I think it's going to be a good one for Australia because there's a few 10s who are putting their hand up and that's going to force the other 10s to play well. Like I'd love to see how O'Connor would have gone in that 30 minutes he played on the weekend if Tom Liner hadn't been playing well. Like, I reckon there's a different little switch in his mind there. He's going on and going, nah, this, it's not this young guy's chance now. Um, Do you reckon that's what Thorne's playing at? Yeah, but I think he's come back from a pretty full-on injury, so he take his time. Um, and probably similar to, like, it's good to see the Brumbies almost follow, like, a bit yeah, of... Yeah, Debrasini, I was going to say that too. Yeah, Brumbies follow a bit of the Kiwi model and give Nick White and Lolesio, um, Lolesio, sorry, um, a, a, a time to, to build into the season. Like, it's such a long year for the Wallabies and the Aussie Super Rugby teams always start pre-season so early. And so now Lolesio, Lolesio, I'm not too sure which one it is, so I apologise. Um to have a Jack Debrasini, again, who's a perfect example of obviously the Brumby system, play really well the first opportunities he gets. So now Noah knows he has to come on and, and play well and has done that. So I think there's some 10 depth. But I, I also love the Waratah 10s. Um, but in terms of my answer, I'm stopped being political. Uh, I'm going to go James O'Connor. Love it. Well, that they were my rapid fire questions because there um, were some tough ones. Um, unless you boys have anything else you want to ask, mate, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Um, we're in all hearing your rugby stories um, because, you know, it's just incredible to, to see what it would be like from that professional perspective. We're screaming at our TV. Um, but to have actually been there and seen it all and done it all and seen the inner workings behind the system. And, and I actually think your story is a really poignant one for Australian rugby. Um, I think it, it tells its own narrative about Australian rugby in the last decade. Um, so thanks heaps for sharing. Yeah, no worries. Um, it's great to come on and I've never thought about it like that, but um, yeah, I was lucky enough to play for, for 12 years. And if you if I said at the start of my career, I'd played for five to six different teams and moved around every two years, I would have said, no, that's not what I want. But I've yeah loved 
loved every minute of it and there's been some ups and plenty of downs and everything in between but yeah definitely happy to come on and have a chat tonight I think as I said at the start like Australian rugby league um needs good good stories and good news and needs people um who are I wouldn't say volunteering but who are pushing to to make it happen and taking time out of your hands to do it happy as well. To, happy to take money if you know anyone. Yeah. <laughs> around. Yeah. But like I mean, like podcasts like this and obviously you would have seen like the Pig Athletic Club and all that sort of stuff. Rugby needs all of that. And it's definitely easy for me to jump on for an hour and have a chat about my career. So yeah, no worries guys. Enjoyed it. Awesome. Thanks a lot, mate. Yeah, no thank worries. you. Really appreciate your time today, Johnny. Thank you so much. No worries. Have a good, good luck night. with the media. We'll be cheering you on on the TV. Oh, absolutely. Let's see. I, hopefully I can keep improving. Killing it, mate. Cheers. Cheers, Thanks, guys. Right.